2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 through 8. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judea and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when, in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times, there was no peace to him who went in or to him who came in out. For our great disturbances affected all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation, and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Ezariah the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the festival of the house of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Some light work in. Thank you. All right, well, if you have a Bible, open to Second Chronicles, where we're going to be today. And feel free to pull the sermon outline out as well to help follow along. Um, it's always good to see uh, you guys on Mother's Day and to get a visit with some of you who are visiting from out of town to see your moms and to honor them here on Mother's Day. A quick uh, word of what we're doing here this year. We're going through all the Bible uh, in honor of our church's 75th anniversary. And so we've been going from Genesis to Revelation uh, from January to December. And so today we're in Second Chronicles, which is probably not the most frequently used passage for Mother's Day. Uh, but I, I think it's actually a really uh, a meaningful one that, that we're going to get into today in Second Chronicles 15. Uh, Mother's Day is not a traditional part of the church calendar in the same way that Easter or Christmas or Pentecost might be, uh, but I think it's an important one because uh, even though Mother's Day is not a explicitly religious holiday, mothers are really the prime theologians in a lot of our lives. They're the ones who teach us about what it means to do right and wrong. That's ethics. They teach us about what it means to pray to God. That's worship and doxology. They teach us about what it means to be saved. Often, a lot of us would say that it was our mother that helped us pray some prayer of salvation as a child. Um, and if you don't think mothers are a primary theological voice in people's lives, just try telling someone their mom is wrong about how to pray. Right? That doesn't go over real well. Um, a lot of us learn Bible stories from our mom uh, before bed as kids. Uh, I remember watching my mom read the Bible, watching both my parents read the Bible, but especially my mom uh, to me as a kid, and learning from her about the importance of reading through the scriptures. Moms are a really important theological voice in our church today and, and in all of our lives as individuals. And um, so we really want to honor those of you who are moms and your spiritual role in the lives not just of your family, but, but of our church family as well. But I also know that not everyone learned a good theological lesson from their mom. Not every mother is a saint. And some of us are carrying into today 
mothers who were not only spiritually difficult, but hazardous to our faith. Maybe we became Christians and our moms warned us against it or mocked our newfound faith in God. Maybe some of us had moms that were hazardous to our view of what it means that God would care for us in the ways that they were either distant or abusive. Or maybe our parents, our mother was a Christian, but that harmed our faith as well because we saw the hypocrisy and results of her sin in her life. And we thought, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want nothing of it. So I know that as we come into Mother's Day, there can be a tendency to pretend that everyone's mother is perfect, everyone's mother is a saint. And obviously that's not the case. And I don't just mean like the worst 10% of really, really lousy moms, but, but all of our moms are in some way spiritually deficient. Even if your mom is a saint, she's not perfect. All of us need a recalibration of what it means to know God because our moms have all pointed us in some way away from God. Even the best moms in this room are not a perfect representation of following Jesus. So some of us need a 180-degree turnaround, and some of us just need like a 15% redirection. But all moms, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, require some level of recalibration. So how do you do that? How do you carry out a spiritual turnaround in your life, especially if your mom didn't give you very many tracks to run on? If you can't look to your mom for spiritual guidance, can you still be a spiritual role model for the people that come after you? Well, that's really the story of Asa, who we're going to talk about today. How did Asa come into a generation that had forgotten about God after four generations of idolatry and wage a spiritual turnaround that helped all of Israel after him? How did Asa bring about a new spiritual reality in his generation that he didn't inherit? You know, it's one thing to say, well, my mom was a Christian, my grandma was a Christian, my great-grandma was a Christian, and so I just follow in their footsteps and do what they did. Well, that's great, but what happens when you don't have those footsteps to walk in? That was Asa's story. Asa was the great-grandson of Solomon, four generations of kings before him, and he ruled Judah from about 910 to 870 BC. But for each of his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather, he didn't have a good spiritual heritage to rely on. And yet he's described as someone who does what is right and good in the eyes of the Lord. This is 2 Chronicles 14, verse 2. It says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, and then it describes what he did that was so good. It says, he took away the foreign altars and the high places, and he broke down the pillars and cut down the asherim. Don't worry exactly about what those are. Those are all different types of idols. That's the main point he's making. And in verse 4 it says, And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. The spiritual life of Israel when Asa became king was pretty dark. It was filled with hypocrisy and idolatry, and they had forgotten about what it meant to worship God. Later on in the passage, it'll say that when he became king, they had no teaching, no uh, understanding of worship. They had totally forgotten about worshiping God because they had been crowded out by the idolatry of the world. And Asa, as a man in his young 20s, is now given authority, religious as well as political, in order to turn around the spiritual vitality of a country. Now, I get um, this would be a better story on Mother's Day if Asa was a queen instead of a king. This would be a better story if it talked about mothers in that way. But I think the lesson of his life is one that's really relevant for Mother's Day. Because 
it asks the question that a lot of you are asking as moms, which is how do I choose to follow God? How do I set up a spiritual legacy in my kids and my grandkids? How, especially if I don't have that to lean on, can I be a model for them coming after me? And for Aza, the lesson is you have to confront the idolatry of your family of origin and the people around you. You have to confront the idols that are in your life. Aza could have just looked the other way, right? He could have done what his dad did, what his grandpa did. Maybe he could have said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in, uh, in the worship of God. I just won't deal with the idols. But what made Aza a great spiritual legacy is he confronted the idols of his family. It isn't just enough for him to be a good example or for himself to call people to holiness. He had to actively confront the generational sins of his family and choose a different path for all within, who were within his sphere of authority. So chapter 15 talks about the Spirit of God comes on a prophet named Azariah. This is what Peggy read for us a moment ago. And the prophet comes to the king and delivers a message. He essentially says, God's with you, Aza. You're the answer to the people's prayer. They've been seeking God, and he sent you as the one who's going to show them what he's like. And then Azariah gives him this exhortation in verse 7 that should probably be on a Mother's Day card somewhere. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read that again because I think a lot of us as mothers and as parents need to hear that. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Remember earlier in chapter 14, uh, Asa calls Judah to repentance, but he doesn't do anything about it. And then in chapter 15, he actually takes a further step of doing something about it. This is what it says in verse 8. In verse eight. As soon as Asa heard these words, the, of, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and he put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities he had taken in the hill country of the Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. So he does something destructive and something constructive, right? He destroys the idols that are within the sphere of his authority. And because he's the king, that means everywhere, right? And then he constructs, he does something constructive. He builds worship in his home and in the people around him. The prophet had come to Asa and encourages him, you're the one who's going to bring renewal to God's people. And Asa has the courage to do it. I, I think that's really appropriate for Mother's Day because I know a lot of you are trying to do that in your family. You're trying to push for a spiritual turnaround. You want something different for your kids than what you received. And I think that as a mother or as a grandmother, you want them to worship God and to experience the peace that Israel experiences under Asa. And for Asa, that meant that the turnaround needed to confront idolatry. And for Asa, the path to spiritual turnaround involved confronting his family's sins. Look down to verse 16. Um, it may be the least Mother's Day of all Mother's Day verses here. Even Makah, his mother, King Asa removed from being queen mother because she had made him a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. Um, some translations say that it's his mother. Some translations say that it's his grandmother. Literally in Hebrew, it says the big mother. Um, and so big mother could be queen mother, or it could be grandmother, or it could be big boned mother. I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Probably not a good Mother's Day joke to make. I'm sorry. <laughs> so how does he honor... Wait, wait, let's think about this together. How does he honor his mother by destroying her idols? 
How does he honor his mother by removing, not just removing the idol, it goes into great detail about how he chops it up, he burns it up, and he flushes it down the river, right? How is that honoring to his mom? Well, the sins of Makah, the sins of his mother or grandmother, they were going to destroy him. They were going to destroy her, and they were going to destroy Israel. The sins of your family, well, it may not be idolatry. In fact, for probably most of us, it's not. But the sins of your family, the generational sins that have been there in your life, in your parents' life, your grandparents' life, they're going to destroy you, and they're going to destroy your kids if you don't destroy them. John Owen famously said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And think about all the different sins that run through family systems. Think about alcoholism, right? And maybe alcoholism was in your mom and in your grandma, and it's in you as well. And if you don't go into recovery, it'll be in your daughter too. Or maybe it's gossip, right? Maybe your family structure is every time you guys are together, you gossip about the people who aren't there, and maybe even the people who are there, right? Um, Or maybe it's racism, right? Racism has been a part of your family for so long that it seems impossible to try to stop it. Or maybe it's wrath, right? The person who turns against the family draws the wrath of the family. Or maybe it's lust or affairs. And it's just normal when someone in your family cheats on their spouse. It's so hard to break the pattern of sin when it comes to generational sin. Because it's like water to the fish. It's just normal that everyone's an alcoholic. That's just what we do, right? Um, And you try to excuse it. and You say, that's just how we are around here. Or we're just passionate. We're uh, We're not lustful. We're just passionate people. Well, we're not gossip. We're just really well-connected. Um, and you fear that if you don't participate in these sins, you'll be exiled, and you won't even have a family to be a part of anymore. And so confronting the sins of our mother or our father, or the sins of our siblings or the sins of our culture seems so difficult. And that's why I think what Aza did is so remarkable. Now, so how do we do that? You know, how, how do we actually confront the sins of the family that we come from? For Aza, he chops up the idol, he burns it up, and he flushes it down the river. But that's not really helpful for most of us, because most of our family's sins aren't so physical, and we don't really have the authority to destroy them. And so you read that passage, and you think, great, Bob, the next time my mother erects an idol, I will cut it up, and I will burn it up, and am I done with this sermon now? Can I go to lunch? No, and maybe your family's sin is sarcasm, so let's just deal with that. (laughs) You know, you may not be able to execute such a physical demonstration of the rejection of sins of your family. Um, You know, how do you chop up and burn racism or or greed or something like that? Uh, But you can determine what sins you're going to encourage and discourage. You can establish boundaries of what's normal in your life and in your home. But to do that, you really have to find a deep identity in the family of God. That's what we see in Aza's life, right? When he calls Judah to repentance, what does he call him to in chapter 14? He says, to worship the God of our fathers. Right? He's calling them to their better identity. He's saying, I'm not destroying your idols. I'm calling you back to the deeper truth about who you are. When Jesus uh, is confronted by his mother and his brothers in the Gospels and said that they want him to stop what he's doing and come home, he says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my brother and my sister. If you or I are going to confront the generational sins in our families, we have to see the better reality that we're part of the family of God, that we have community even if our family of origin uh, fails us. And we have to commit to honor our parents in the process, right? Asa, even though he deposes his mother's idol, he doesn't cease to honor her because we never honor someone by encouraging their sin, right? 
If, if you're going to be judged by God for something, the last thing that's honoring to you is for me to encourage you to keep doing it. Right? Sometimes the most honoring thing is to confront our parents' sin or the sin of our grandparents because we want what's best for them, not just what they find as the path of least resistance. Now, I, I do want to make a, a, a quick aside here. Um, we're talking about sin and idolatry. We're not talking about preferences here. So uh, if you leave this and you say, you know what? I really should tell my mom that she can't be a vegetarian in my home anymore. Like, <laughs> nope, nope that's, not, that's within the realm of Christian freedom, right? Like, this is not an excuse to confront your, you know, your, your parents about their gas guzzler car or the way that they vote for Democrats or whatever. Like, just, um, this is about, like, sins that are destroying the soul, not inevitable generational differences that come between every uh, set of kids and their parents. So what are the generational sins in your family? In some ways, this, will be, this is the easiest and the hardest step of the process, to be able to recognize what are the generational sins. It's easy because you've noticed them for years, right? Your siblings and you probably laugh about them and joke about them. Your spouse maybe has tactfully or not so tactfully pointed them out to you. This is why it's really helpful when you marry into a family if your spouse's siblings also have people they're married to, because then at least at Thanksgiving, you have someone else to turn to and be like, they're crazy, right? Yeah, they are crazy. Like, we all agree they're crazy. <laughs> but it's, one, it's easy to notice some in some ways, but it's also incredibly hard because it can feel so shameful to say, I come from a family of alcoholics, or I come from a family of people who cheat on their spouse, or I come from a family of people who are gossips or racists. We want to make excuses for our family because we don't want to have those labels stick to us, too. Because we're afraid, what would it mean about us if I come from uh, something that lives in me that way? Pete Scazzaro said, Jesus may live in our hearts, but Grandpa lives in our bones. Right? Jesus may live in our heart, but Grandpa lives in our bones. And those generational sins can be part of us. And so, like everything that we don't like about ourselves, it can be easy just to ignore it and f- try to forget about it and pretend it's not there. But if, like Aza, we're going to confront our spiritual, uh, the ways that our, we need a spiritual turnaround in our generation, we have to be honest about the generational sins that beset us and choose to go a different direction. Think about some of the generational sins that we see in the Old Testament. Think about Abraham's family. Think about some of the ways that generational sin pops up again and again in Genesis. Abraham lies, right? He lies repeatedly in Genesis. And guess what Isaac does? He lies too, because that's what dad does. That's what we do in the Abraham family. In fact, he names his son Jacob, which means liar, right? That's how you know you have a generational sin, if you name your kid after it. (laughs) And then Isaac's sons lie to him. And every time they're amazed that the same sin they practice shows up in their kids. I would encourage you to, to take the step of trying to identify what those generational sins are in your family. There's a helpful resource. It's a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro, who I mentioned earlier. He has a chapter in there on how to construct a spiritual genogram to look at where the spiritual patterns are in your lives. Where are some ways that you need to ask God uh, to help you build a spiritually turnaround legacy in your generation? Now, you can ignore that. You don't, you don't have to confront that. But if you do, if you do confront those sins, not only will you experience more spiritual uh, connection with God as you root out this sin from your soul, but you're going to set up your kids and your grandkids to have more spiritual vitality as well. Because if you, if you don't root the sin out of your life, you're just passing it on to them to have to be the turnaround after you. And Asa's legacy really is that he's spiritually beneficial, not just for himself and not just for Israel and his life, but for the generation to come. It says in verse 17, 
Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts. I love that, by the way. Right? Asa's turnaround actually reframes his father's worship that wasn't there before. Sacred gifts of silver and gold and vessels. And then verse 19, And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. In Kings and in Chronicles, war is sort of a proxy for whether the people were obedient to God. And so what the chronicler is saying is that the peace for 35 years points to the fact that Asa's heart had turned Israel back towards God, and as a result of that, the people experienced peace. Asa wasn't a perfect guy. In fact, in his later years, he messes up in a way that, that harms him and harms the people around him. But he was a good enough king, just like a lot of you are good enough parents. And your hearts are with God, even if you do stupid things sometimes. And you desire to identify and break the generational sins in your family. And if you do that, you can help your kids to benefit from that. Not that they'll all walk with God. Not that it's your fault or your credit if they do or don't. But you're going to set them up more to succeed if you're willing to take on the task of breaking those bonds yourself. After Asa came another king, Jehoshaphat, who uh, followed in his father's footsteps who continued the spiritual turnaround that his father had started. And it didn't last forever. Jehoshaphat's son was kind of a bad guy. But ultimately, Asa's great-great-great-great-great-grandson would be Jesus. Um, He'd be the one who would follow in Asa's footsteps and who would confront the sins of his generation. Like his great-grandfather, Jesus uh, would would turn and face those who are leading the people astray and would be willing to have the courage to stand up, to have his hands be strong and confront the idols of his day. But unlike Asa, uh, Jesus wouldn't do it by destroying the idols, but by dying on the cross for the sins of the world, for yours and mine. But it comes out of the same place of courage that Asa had. And Asa points us to Jesus and the hope that comes from him. Well, a couple questions for you to pray about uh, and to discuss on this Mother's Day. Who in your family line has left a positive spiritual turnaround legacy? Or to put it differently, how has your mom broke the patterns of her mom? And maybe that's something you could put in a card or you can thank your mom for tactfully today. Mom, thank you that I, I, see, I see ways that you turned us more toward Jesus. Thank you for that. Secondly, what sins in my life am I burdening my children and my grandchildren to have to repent of and to break? Like, am, am, I, am I creating the idolatry that my kids are going to have to push off? Am I establishing patterns of behavior that are going to live in their bones and in my grandkids' bones? And then lastly, what generational sins have I inherited from my parents and my grandparents that I need to challenge? What ways have they set me up? Maybe not maliciously, but in reality, have they set me up to walk away from God? How can I repent of those? Let's close our time in prayer. God, we're so grateful for Aza's little story in Second Chronicles because it points us to you. Um, I know how hard it is to challenge anything in a family structure, especially when it's matters of sin and rebellion and shame. God, we're grateful for Aza's example. I pray for my friends who are here who are trying so hard to be a turnaround generation. They're trying to do it differently than they saw done before them. Uh, God, would you strengthen their hands? Would you give them courage? Jesus, we are so thankful that you were the one who was faithful to God, even when it meant challenging those close to you. Thank you that we benefit from your legacy in that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.